This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are exploring the next two tests of God's people on their way to Mount Sinai in Exodus 16 and 17. And again, we do have a presentation for today, so get that opened up and follow along with us. Yeah, so uh, don't forget where the story falls. Um, we've set the story up in the book of Genesis. We'd have a preface where God told us that creation was good. That's what he thinks about it. That matters because he's the one that made it. He's the one that is king or master of the universe, as the Jewish blessing says. So what he thinks is important. He thinks it's good. Invites his creation to trust it. Finds a family in the introduction, Genesis 12 through 50. Avram, Yitzhak, Jacob, Yosef. This is a family that, uh, although they struggle and although it's difficult, they learn how to trust that story. Uh, they learn how to trust in God's provision. They learn how to trust in God's acceptance and his love. And that sets the story up for us. And then the narrative of God begins. In the book of Exodus, the narrative starts. We've, we've called the narrative a tale of two kingdoms. And we are always going to have these two narratives uh, that are juxtaposed together. Um, we're going to have two kingdoms. We're going to have empire and shalom. And empire is going to be built off of fear. Empire is going to be built off of coercion. Empire is going to be built off of a, a particular kind of stick, the out. Uh, the outstretched arm and the upraised stick of Pharaoh uh, trying to enforce his will upon others. And instead, uh, we have the kingdom of Shalom, which is the shepherd's stick of God leading with his, his voice and trying to teach his people how to trust his voice. And instead of fear, it's about trust and invitation. And these are two different worlds. And so God's rescued his people out of empire out of Egypt, and, and now they're on their way to Sinai, where they're going to figure out what it means to follow God. They're going to figure out what obedience looks like. But on the way, as we talked about last week, uh, God is, is testing his people. Along the way, uh, God has three tests because he wants to know, according to Deuteronomy 8, he wants to experience, to yada in the Hebrew, he wants to experience what's in their heart. And so he puts them through three tests. He tests their heart, and he tests their soul, uh, and he tests their might. He tests their levav, he tests their nafesh, and he tests their meod. And we're going to talk about uh, the last two. So last week we talked about how he tested their heart. Where was that test at, Mr. Brent? At Mara. At Mara. The waters of Mara, where the waters were bitter, and God was trying to teach them to wait on... On his word. On every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To just trust that God will give you what you need. Just be obedient and follow the voice, follow the commands, follow the invitation of God. And he will lead you to a place like Elim if you'll only let him. So that was test number one. And they got to show God where they were at. And that was their gift to him. And I think a lot of times we look at that as a, as a pass or a fail. And we look at that and we go, boy, they failed. They failed the test. But that's not what the test was about. Um, yeah, sure, in some respects they failed. But in a lot of respects, that's exactly what God wanted to experience with them. And he was able to give them his gift, which was teaching them a lesson. So now uh, we move on. So we go to Exodus 16. So we'll pick up the whole Israelite assembly. Uh, I'm in verse 1. Uh, set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had come out of Egypt in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moshe and Aharon. 
And the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So they're grumbling again. So part of us says, so they haven't learned a thing. But, uh, you know, I've sat in a lot of Bible studies, uh, a lot of care groups, a lot of different settings where uh, we study this passage kind of from from the comfortable living rooms of uh, our homes here in wonderful America. And, and, and we say things like, I can't believe, I can't believe this saw miracle after miracle. I can't believe that they, they can't believe God. Like they just walked through the Red Sea and they just had the water turned from, from bitter to sweet. And, uh, and I think it's always good. If you ever get a chance to go wander around the desert, Brent, does it give you a, a little bit new perspective? Oh boy, it does. Yeah. I you, mean, you, you don't know what thirst is really like. Yeah. You, you don't sit in a Bible study from then on and go, oh, those stupid Israelites. Cause we have a hard time spending eight hours out of the bus. Wandering around the Negev. Well, we have a hard time listening to the review that you give at the <laughs> beginning of every... People are like, we, we already know this stuff. I know. But man, you forget so quickly. Yeah. And the Bible is one big narrative. Yeah. And if you don't remember where you came from, right, you're in big trouble. Yeah. You don't understand. Yeah. This is just one case where their story is our story. One of many, many, many cases. It's not, oh, those stupid Israelites and what they know. Like, man, this is... If we were really honest, we'd find a lot of our own lives in this first few verses here. So, but yeah. And uh, so then the Lord said to Moshe, I will rain down bread from, now pay attention to what God says here. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And this way I will test them. So here comes a second test and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moshe and Aharon said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moshe also said, which appears to me to be one of those Hebrew breaks. Apparently that assembly went, hmm, got nothing. So Moses says, you will know that it was the Lord who gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So what was it? Did anything strike you about that that Moses said that seemed odd? Uh, I mean, meat in the evening, bread in the morning. I don't like what is why? Why separate them? Boy, I just heard that. Like, coming from you, I just heard that Genesis refrain there. I don't know if there's anything there, evening and the morning. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting, because did God say anything about meat? Yeah. No, he did not. He did not. God didn't say anything about meat. God said he'd give him bread. Moses seems, and it came after that pause, if you noted. Like, Moses said, God's going to, you're going to know. And the people say apparently nothing. And so then Moses seems to be like, he seems to know that there's more going on here. And Moses seems to be trying to warn them. Like he's going above and beyond what God said he was going to do. And God's going to honor it here in just a moment, which I love that. But Moses seems to be warning the people like you're in dangerous territory right now. What you're doing is very, very tricky. And there seems to be a warning going up. But we'll come back to that here in just a moment. 
Then Moshe told Aharon, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aharon was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moshe, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat. So God seems to honor what Moses did there. And in the morning you will be filled with bread and you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Now, what is it is mancha in the Hebrew. Mancha. Uh, the Lord, uh, let's see here. Where did I leave off? Mm. Moses said to them, is it the bread the Lord has, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. So God's given them specific instructions. And he told Moses, I want to see if they're going to follow these instructions. Now, what is an omer? An o- that's a good question. We don't know specifically. One, uh, a lot of your footnotes will say it's uh, just short of a leader. Um, the problem is, is we don't necessarily know if that's accurate. If we would, if we assume that they're talking about the Egyptian measurement, the Egyptians had what they what they would call a homer, and a homer was just about a cup. Which, either way, I mean, it's not a ton of manna you're gathering for the day. But I would say the most, like the the best case for us to assume is that they're working with Egyptian measurements. It's where they've lived for the last centuries. So they have to be working with Egyptian measurements. And if it's an Egyptian measurement, this is a cup. This is a cup of manna for the day uh, for each person. So this isn't a lot, but it's a good question. We don't exactly know if it's a liter or a cup. Is it possible that it's a relative measurement because it says one for each person and each person is going to need a different amount of food? It doesn't seem to be. Uh, You wouldn't expect it to be a relative measurement. Uh, You'd expect it to be an exact measurement, but I think there's going to be some stuff that's going to play into that question. I think that question's good. We're going to come back to that, I think. Um, let's see here. The Israelites, now here's the deal. See here, we always read these stories and we think, oh, the Israelites, oh, children of Israel, they just fail every time. Just a bunch of failures. Listen to what this says. The Israelites did as they were told. <laughs> some gathered much, some little. And when they had measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who had gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, so so they do some things right and they struggle with some other things. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. Now, I think my assumption would be it's not going to make it. But apparently it does. So they saved it until morning, as Moshe commanded, and did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moshe, how long will you refuse to keep my command, my commands and instructions? 
Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out, so the people rest on the seventh day. This is definitely God using this test to see what's in their heart and also to teach them. Like he's using this test to teach them about Shabbat. But he's also getting to see what's in their heart. And I love this because not only did that verse say, I want to go back up to that verse, uh, verse 17. It's not just the Israelites did as they were told, but listen to the rest of this verse. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much and some little. And when they had measured it by the Omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. There are two ways to read that verse. One way to read that verse is that some people went out and they were really worried. And so they gathered a lot. And then some people went out and they just trusted and they didn't gather a lot or they were lazy or whatever. But then when they came in, it was all the same amount, like some, some crazy way, like it all measured the same. And that's how I always read it and how I, I think I was kind of taught uh, subconsciously, unconsciously to read it that way. Uh, but the rabbis teach, it's not the only way to read that. And they actually teach based on the law and the statute. Can you remember what the law and the statute was of the first test, Brent? According to the Midrash, should we point out? Midrash, so the they need they need to let the the lame, the marginalized, the sick go first. Right, exactly. And so here the rabbis teach, you know, you don't have to read that verse that way. You can also read don't you think that in this group of people that came out of Egypt that there were probably some that were apparently, according to the Midrash, sick and elderly. And do you think that some people couldn't have even gone out because they either were handicapped or, uh, should I say, disabled or, or some other struggle that they had? They couldn't have, they were sick that day, unable to gather. The rabbis teach that the community went out and gathered for everybody. And some weren't able to gather that much or any at all, but some went out and gathered more than their share so that when they came in and measured it out, everybody had exactly what they needed. And actually, when you go back and look at that verse, I think that's actually the best way to read that verse. It actually makes more sense than what I had always assumed when I read it before. I'll read verse 17 one more time. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it by the Omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much. And the one who had gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. I think what we see here is that the Israelites are learning. They're learning from God. They're not just failing. Yes, they're going to have their their rough moments. They're about ready to have another rough moment here as soon as we pick the story right back up. It's not going to necessarily be pretty. But they also have moments that are pretty. They have moments where they do learn the lessons that they're supposed to learn. And they are growing as a community. And uh, Yeah, that last sentence, just like the community had gathered just as much as the community needed. Right. And that's not to take the miracle away from it. Because it's pretty cool if like they all went out and gathered and some gathered extra and some didn't gather because they couldn't. And at the end of every day, there was just enough to go around for everybody. That would still be a pretty cool thing to be a part of. Well, and the fact that it's even there. Right. Yeah. 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 There's no there's kidding. plenty of <laughs> plenty of miracle crazy stuff happening. <laughs> so anyway, but if you go back to the beginning of that chapter, I mentioned that I thought Moses seemed to be kind of issuing a warning. Uh he seems to know something about the heart of his people here when Moses is like, God said he's gonna give you bread and you're gonna see the glory of the Lord. And they're like, eh. And Moses is like, Listen, you're gonna get meat. And you're also going to get bread. And he kind of like ups the ante, but he kind of seems to be pretty perturbed about it. And he 
he seems to be issuing this warning to the people. I think he knows something about their heart. So I want to jump over to Psalm 78 because Psalm 78 actually talks to us a little bit about this experience here in the desert. And I want to to read to you what it says here. It's the middle of the Psalm. I'm going to start in verse 17 and it's talking about this, this time in the desert. It says, they continued to sin against him, referring to God, rebelling in the wilderness against the most high. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God and said, can God really spread a banquet in the wilderness? True, he struck the rock and water gushed out. Streams flowed abundantly. But can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord heard them, he was furious. His fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel. For they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. He let loose the east wind. There's your east wind again. uh, From the uh, heavens and by the power made the south wind blow. He rained meat down on them like dust. Birds like sand on the seashore. He made them come down inside their camp all around their tents. They ate till they were gorged. He had given them what they had craved. But before they turned from what they craved, even while the food was still in their mouths, God's anger rose against them. He put to death the sturdiest among them, cutting down the young men of Israel. It's the first part of that section there that seems to give us more commentary. At the very least, this is how they understood this story later in their history when they wrote this inspired psalm that this story was about, it wasn't about just meat and bread. It was that they were demanding the food they craved. They demanded, they put God to the test here in Psalm 78, it says. Demanding, because here's the thing. What did they come out of Egypt with, Brent, when they came out of Egypt? They brought with them some stuff out of Egypt. Can you remember what? All kinds of stuff. Like uh, what? Cattle and... Okay, so they already have meat. Yeah. They actually don't need meat. So the scripture looks back on the story and it says, wait a minute, they didn't, this is all about demanding that God do stuff for them that they don't even necessarily need. And this, when you go back and you look actually at Exodus uh, 16, uh, actually we'll talk about, um, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. And Moses seems to tap into this. Moses seems to realize that what they really want isn't just food because they're hungry. What they really want is a particular kind of food. And he seems to warn the people, you are dancing in dangerous territory here because it's, it, you are almost putting God to the test. But then, in fact, that's exactly where the story is going to go. So let's go to the next chapter, next to 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? So there's that same idea we saw in Psalm 78. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? 
And Moses, Ze'ekad, the word there for cry is Ze'ekad. What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now, I read this verse, and I personally don't believe that's a figure of speech. I don't think that's Moses overreacting. The word there is Ze'ekad. I think Moses is, has literal fear for his life here in this passage. I think he realizes this is not good. And the people here are putting God to the test. So when the rabbis teach about this story, this is the second test. The first test was, will you love me with all of your heart? Your levav, your levavka. This test is about your nafesh. Will you love me with all of your soul? Now, in the Hebrew mind, if the heart, can you remember what we said the heart was in our last podcast, Brent? The seed of the, the... The heart is the will. The will. It's where worship comes from because you choose to voluntarily obey. The nafesh, your soul is the essence of who you are. It's the seed of your very being. So even though Brent has a body and Brent has a mind and Brent has... Brent still has a thing about him that we can't quantify that makes you Brent. In fact, I was just talking to one of our good friends, Seth, who listens to our podcast. Hey, Seth. We were talking about um, uh, uh, artificial intelligence and the movement of technology and how there's a, there's a time in the future where he will be able to upload your thoughts, your emotions, your, your chemistry into a machine. And we talked about whether or not is, – is that a human entity? Is that – and the thing that I kept coming back to is it, it's missing the nafesh. It may have all your brain chemistry. It may have all the bits and pieces and all the stuff it needs to duplicate you, but it still won't have the you that we would call the nafesh, the soul. And so the rabbis teach that when you put God to the test, what you're actually refusing to give God is your soul because your soul is yourself, your whole self, the self that is your entity, like it is who you are. And they sat in the desert and they said, we won't move any further unless God proves himself to us. That's what Psalm 78 seemed to teach us. They demanded a banquet in the wilderness and said, we're not moving unless God proves him. And and again, we go back and we think they just walked through the Red Sea. I can imagine Moses going, but you just ate manna this morning. Like you said, how, how miraculous is that? And I picture the people saying, make him prove it. But but you just walked through the Red Sea just a few days ago. Like, can't you remember? And I know, make him show us again. They're putting God to the test. And so Moses cries out and he says, they're going to stone me. And I love God's next words. Immediate words. The Lord answered Moses, go in front of the people. <laughs> so he's he's scared for his life. And the first words out of God's mouth is, go walk in front of him. Right. Uh, So go in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord there saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, God tells them to go to Horeb. Horeb is a fancy word for Sinai. In fact, after the Israelites are at Sinai, it will never be called Sinai again. It will always be called Horeb. Horeb refers to the region. Sinai seems to refer to the mountain. Um, So God tells them to go to Mount Sinai, apparently a mountain he's been to before. Now, what we don't pick up here is depending on where you put Mount Sinai and Rephidim, which there's all kinds of argument about those things. 
There's 19 different proposals for Mount Sinai. My personal favorite for anybody wondering is Jebel Katerina, which is the uh, traditional site, um, has the monastery on it and all that. I think it's probably the right one in my mind, but I'm not a scholar, so it really doesn't matter. Nevertheless, that's 17 miles from Rephidim. Like we don't picture Moses, we kind of picture him like walking out of the tent and grabbing the elders and going over to the side where there's the mountain and hitting the mountain and water coming out. God tells him to walk 17 miles ahead of the people. They haven't gotten to Sinai yet. They're still 17, maybe as as few as 11 miles away from Mount Sinai. And he walks ahead of them to the mountain and strikes the mountain and water gushes out. And he takes the elders with him to see. Now what the elders see when they get there, I don't know in its exact detail, but it's very interesting. Um, God tells Moses he needs to go to Sinai. So he takes a stick. He's got that stick, that same stick following him through the desert, the symbol of God's shepherding authority, the shepherding leading voice of God uh, in that stick. And he takes the elders. He walks 11, 15, 17 miles ahead to Sinai. And God says, I will stand before you at the rock. And this is a phrase that uses the word panim. And it's an interesting phrase. And so I've drawn a couple pictures here for us. My artistic prowess is fantastic. I'm just warning you. Okay. I got a bearded stick figure. That's Moses, in case anybody's curious. That bearded stick figure there. I worked really long and hard on that this afternoon. In the mirror, perhaps? Yeah, exactly. Moses looks like me, doesn't he? It's really good. I like that. No hair on top. No hair on top. Beard. I like that. And and then, of course, there's the mountain, in case anybody's curious what that thing is on the right. Mountain's pretty good, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, so you got Moses, and you got the mountain, and God says, I'm going to stand before you at the rock. And just so people know, in the, in, the of, uh, in the region of Sinai, the mountains rise like straight out of the ground. Uh, I've, I've been to the region, and you can, you can stand next to the—you can actually stand on the ground and have the mountain right next to you and reach out your hand and touch it. So when that story comes up later and God says, don't touch the mountain— and you're thinking, like, how do they know where the mountain starts? Like, at what point of slope? Like, what, what percentage of grade do you can? Well, in, the, in this region, you literally can stand next to the mountain and reach your hand out and touch it. Uh, so God says, I'm going to stand before you at the rock. And when it uses this, this Hebrew word panim in this way, it means I'm going to stand between you and the rock. And so if we go to the next slide there, I've put a little... I didn't want to try to draw God. That would be incredibly sinful of me. So I just put a big red thing there. But that would be where God says, I'm going to stand. I am going to stand between you and the mountain. I'm going to stand between you and the rock. And I want you to strike, and the word vayach, strike to kill. It's the exact same thing that Moses did early in the story to who? Uh, The Egyptian. Right. This is a part of what's like deep inside of Moses, the methods of empire. And God says, Moses, I've, I've trained this out of you as a shepherd for 40 years. I want you to take that stick and I want you to vaya me. I want you to strike because you're not just striking the mountain. The picture here is very clear. God is saying, if you're going to strike the mountain and I'm going to be standing in front of it and you're striking to kill, you don't strike the mountain of God without making a big statement. And so God is telling Moses, Moses... I know that the people deserve judgment, but I want you to strike me instead of them. Strike me and I will provide for them. And of course, I mean, we've got to pause just long enough to point out 
Yes, that just screams Jesus. Of course it does. Striking the rock and water gushing out in all kinds of ways. Um, but it also, it doesn't, it doesn't just point forward to Jesus. It also points backward to story after story after story that we encountered in Genesis. This is the story of Noah, where God says, I will remember the covenant. Even though you're supposed to, I'll do it. This is the blood path where God says, even though you're going to fail, I will walk the blood path on your behalf. This is the the Akedah with the binding of Isaac where God says, I will provide the sacrifice. Over and over and over again, God proves himself to be the same loving God who's going to take, going to pay the price on behalf of his people. Always going to provide the sacrifice. Always going to remember this is always going to be the character and the nature of God. The God of the New Testament is not, he's not, he's not different than the God of the Old Testament. It's the same God over and over and over again. And God wanted Moses to bring the elders so the elders could see it, the elders could understand it, and the elders could know it. And so they get back just in time for test number three. Because in Exodus 17, we're told that while they're on their way back, the Amalekites attack the Israelites at Rephidim. Uh, and if you don't mind, go ahead and read that story there, Brent. And this is where you want ESV? Yes. We're going to read this out of the ESV uh, because the NIV um, doesn't translate it quite as correctly. And I need it translated well. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moshe said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Okay, so I'll stop you there. In Deuteronomy 25, we're told all about the Amalekites. And they were a desert band of raiders, what we know from history, as they seem to be, they live in the desert and they were a bunch of raiders. And their method was that they would fight groups of people from the back. Because as people go through the desert, who's going to be lagging? Who's going to be hanging out in the back, Brent? We've walked through the desert before. Yeah, the weakest. Yeah. The, the weary, yeah, the, the tired, the sick, the injured, and they're, they're hanging out in the back. And so the Amalekites attack groups from the back. It's like the cheap shot. It's a horrible, and God judges them in Deuteronomy. He says, do not forget, Deuteronomy 25, do not forget what Amalek did to you while you were on your way in the desert. They attacked you from behind and attacked those who were weary and sick and lame. Do not forget, God says, they will be judged ever so severely for the way that they attacked. This was not right. This was unjust. And so this is this is who Amalek is and what happens to them. And they're gonna learn they're gonna learn from this, by the way, because later in the story when God tells them how to march the desert, he's going to tell them that the sick and the weary and the the injured have to go in the middle of the pack. He's going to put the tribe of Dan in the back, and he's going to give Dan the job of bringing up the rear. You were Dan on our last trip. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you know what it's like to sit in the back, but they were not going to let the weak. I remember my rabbi telling me, if you ever see a community of God's people, you can tell how obedient they are by where you find the weak and the marginalized. If you find the weak and the marginalized in the margins, you know they've bought into the narrative of empire. But if you find the weak and the marginalized in the center with the wagon circled around, a part of the family being protected and cared for, you know you're dealing with the narrative of shalom, the tale of two kingdoms. So anyway, go ahead and keep reading. 
So Joshua did as Moshe told him and fought with Amalek, while Moshe, Aharon, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moshe held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moshe's hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aharon and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moshe, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moshe built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. So he calls this place Adonai Nasi, and it's an interesting phrase there. Before I actually talk about Nasi, um, to go back up to how your ESV translated that correctly, if you'll read uh, for me again, we've mentioned that every single one of these tests has what kind of an element to it, Brent? A community element. Right. There's always this communal lesson to be learned. And we saw it in the first test. We saw it in the second test and how they distributed the manna and sought out the manna. And now we're going to see it here again, uh, because when the Amalekites fight, uh, will you read to me how the ESV translates verse, uh, let's see here, verse nine, when Moses talks to Joshua. So Moshe said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Choose for us men who will go out and fight. I like the ESV because it includes the for us part. A lot of the translations translates that away. My NIV says, choose some some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. But the ESV preserves the for us. Choose for us men who will go out and fight. However... In the Hebrew, the for us doesn't have to go there. That's an arbitrary, um, that's the translators picking where to put that. And the rabbis teach that the for us is supposed to go in a different part of that sentence. It should say, choose men who will fight for us. And they connect this later to the story of Gideon. So extra credit for anybody who can figure that out. Um, but uh, they, they have this, I want men who will fight for us us, not just for themselves. Again, there's this communal element in the way that Moses says, go find the right kind of men who will fight, men who will fight for us. And that's going to be who they, who they are. And so, um, that's how they, that's how they choose their men. And then at the end of the story, as we pointed out, uh, Moshe calls this place Adonai Nasi, which is, which means the Lord is my banner or the Lord is my flag. So we actually have a photo here, uh, not a photo, but a picture, uh, a pictorial depiction of an Egyptian gate. These would have been the gates that they would have been familiar with as they lived in Egypt. These tall gates, uh, sometimes 70, 100 feet tall, and they would have had these large flags that went up above and over the top of the gates. And we know from records that when people sailed in towards uh, the Nile, they sailed in to, or even up the Nile, and they sailed into any of these places where there was a temple set up. One of the first things you'd see on the horizon is the flags sticking up. And the flags were supposed to point you to where the God was. The flags weren't the point. The flags were just the thing pointing you towards the point. Uh, so the flags represented what lied beyond it. Um, and in the Hebrew, you say flag or banner, you say nasi. And so what Moses did by standing up on the rock and holding the staff up in the air is he acted as a nasi. And whenever the Israelites looked up, they didn't just look up at Moses and his stick. They looked up at what lied beyond Moses and his stick and they saw 
the Lord. The Lord is my banner, Moshe said. And so the rabbis teach that this is test number three. That test number three is, will you love me with all of your very? And uh, you say, what, what do you mean? All your might? I thought it was love me with all your might. Uh, in Shema, which we learned this last week in our discussion groups, and we've put a link on the website for anybody that wants to learn what I call the Jesus Shema. In Shema, we're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the word there for might is the word meod. But meod doesn't really mean might. Meod means very. If you remember in the Genesis story, can you remember where the word meod showed up? Uh, at the end of Genesis 1. When creation was what? Very good. Yeah, tov meod. And tov is good, meod is very. And so meod is the word for very. So what Deuteronomy 6 and Shema literally says is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your very. The rabbis teach, what does that mean? It means all your very everything. It means all of your resources, your talents, your time, your strength. Sometimes we translate it strength, but I don't like it because I don't think it encapsulates enough. Anything you could possibly have to offer God, anything at all that you could ever do with your hands, anything you could ever accomplish on your own, you give it to God and you love him with everything you could ever produce and do. And that's to love the Lord your God with all your very. And so here they sit fighting the Amalekites on behalf of each other, on behalf of community. And I think the lesson here uh, of the test of your... um, Uh, the test of your might, the test of your very, is if you will make sure that you're using your very, your might, every last resource, in the name of the one that the Nasi pointed towards, in the name of the Lord, uh, the passage that might get linked to this would be, serve the Lord your God and worship him only. Extra credit to anybody that can tell me why I would quote that verse uh, to talk about the third test. But worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Make sure you're using your very, the third test. Make sure you would use your every last resource in the name and to the purposes and for the narrative of Adonai. We might say Kedush Hashem, to magnify and glorify the name, to consecrate the name, to hallow the name. Make sure you use it. That will be the third test. The rabbis will teach later in their story that maybe the third test actually came once they got to the promised land. But we might talk about that later. But the third test in the desert happened to be right here at Rephidim. They've been tested in their heart. They've been tested in their soul and they've been tested in their very. And the question falls to us whether or not we will love the Lord, our God with all of our will, whether we will give God all of our soul, our nefesh, and whether we will use all of our talents and our resources and everything we could have to offer to love the Lord our God. So that's it for today. Sounds great. Uh, quite the test for us as well. Absolutely. Well, if you live on the Palouse, uh, join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, maybe uh, submit some of those extra credit answers. You can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. You can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. There as well, we've got information. Uh, We've had a few people who are interested in supporting us financially. You can find information about how to do that on BaymontDiscipleship.com, as well as the broader 
scope of uh, Marty's ministry and Impact Campus Ministry. So all that all that stuff is there. So thanks for joining us on the Bay One Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.